the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. I mean, I never set out to be an activist. It just sort of, uh, I call myself like an unwilling activist because I think my very existence is politicalized. It still is even today. And up until like 2014, I was always saying no to a lot of media opportunities because, you know, I'd got to a point where I was happy with myself. Did I then want to like talk about who I was, what this community was about and open up this massive can of worms again and do it publicly? Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Matt Kane Meets on Virgin Radio Pride. That was Asifa Lahore, star of the Channel 4 documentary Muslim Drag Queens. As one of the most prominent figures on the UK's Gaijin scene, she's a DJ and club promoter, a proud trans woman and an intersectional and disability rights activist. I'll be speaking to Asifa right after this. Matt Kane Meets. Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane Meets, and today I am delighted to be meeting Asifa Lahore. Asifa, welcome. Thank you. It's great <laughs> being here, Matt. It's great to have you. There is so much I want to talk to you about, but I want to start by going right back to the beginning. I want to start talking about your life story. I want to go back to where it where it all kicked off in. South Hall in London, 1983, and your family is Pakistani heritage. I'd love to know just how conservative or culturally observant religious they are, because I want to get a handle on your life story. So, yeah, I was born in 1983 in South Hall. Um, please give gold stars to your researcher. Um, <laughs> and we weren't in South Hall for very long, actually. We were only there for one year. So I don't actually remember a lot of it. But in terms of, like, being from a Pakistani background and my family, as far as I can remember, my family have always been quite conservative. They've always been quite culturally British and Pakistani. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And am I right in thinking that your dad had a sari shop? My dad had all sorts of shops while we were growing up. But my dad, you know, he had an array of, of curry shops. He had an array of fabric shops, sari shops. So, you know, it's interesting because we moved from South Hall to Tooting to Brixton within the space of, I think, two or three years. And um, my sort of first formulative years that I can remember were in Brixton. Oh, that's interesting. So mm. that's not necessarily a big Pakistani community. It's known for a different ethnic group, isn't it, in the population? Yes, I mean, Brixton has a heavy black community that is still there, but I, you know, my formative years were very much sort of like late 80s and in the late 80s there were so many South Asian people that lived in Brixton at the time so much so that we actually had a I remember an Asian community centre uh, and I remember my mum and all the other ladies and from the community like being bundled into like these big vans that would take us to like Margate and Chichester and Chessington so yeah I, I, I sort of grew up like feeling that I was definitely Pakistani but also at the same time you know God, Britishness was there all around me in Brixton and my parents allowed us to sort of 
explore our Britishness. Uh, I didn't feel that any time that there was a, you know, that my parents were like, you know, don't do this or don't do that. I mean, my my deputy head teacher at my primary school and a couple of like senior teachers at primary school were South Asian as well. Oh. And, you know, they would roam around in their saris and, and their bindis on, on their heads. And I kind of grew up with the notion that you could do or be anything in this country. And how about, um, how was your religion embraced by this country? Because, and how observant were your family when you were growing up? Because obviously it was a different time for Muslims in the 80s, 90s. Most definitely. I mean, I still remember sort of like pre-9-11 times when sort of Islam was seen as like the religion of peace. And, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s, the South Asian community was mostly seen as one. We weren't really differentiated as, you know, there's your Hindus, there's your Sikhs, there's your Muslims. We were one quite big, homogenous British Asian community. And yes, I remember going to the mosque. I remember being, you know, taught Quran lessons and stuff and not really getting it and it's only years later when I discovered I was uh, dyslexic which is the reason why mum sort of homeschooled me when it came to like Quran lessons oh really um, yeah so you know at the same time I I, I Religion was a massive part of my life. And at the same time, so was being British. I mean, I remember getting up on Saturday mornings and watching like Timmy Mallet on, on television <laughs> and, and Wackaday Saturdays, whatever they were called, well before SMTV and CD UKs. I mean, I remember that. I as well. can remember Timmy Mallet. You don't, you don't have to uh, explain him to me. <laughs> and, you know, I literally like, I would wake up, watch that, and then, you know, like an hour of my Saturdays was spent doing like Quran lessons. Um, or playing with children, you know, in, in the council estate playground. Right, so there's a lot going on, cultural influences, religious influences, and then inside you were realising that you were attracted to men, first of all, or boys, should I say, at that age. I watched a clip of you online doing a talk at some event and you were talking about playing with some of your older male cousins when they were throwing you around as part of some game and you realised that you were actually attracted to boys as you were at the time. Most definitely. So that's one of my first ever memories. I must have been about five and my auntie's family lived in West Norwood, which was literally down the road from uh, us in Brixton. And every weekend we'd tumble onto the bus and go to my auntie's place. And my cousins, my auntie had like seven children, five of them were boys. And the boys were sort of like in their teenage uh, years. And me being like this cute little five-year-old kid, they'd pick me up and throw me around the room like a frisbee catching me one by one <laughs> and I remember this sense of absolute euphoria and laughing and, and being caught I loved it and at the same time obviously I was five years old so it's not like I was aroused but yeah. I just wanted to just be around my cousins all the time because I liked them I liked them and I liked their company. But you knew you liked them and their company in a way that was different to what you were supposed to be feeling. Yes, and obviously being five years old, I couldn't quite, you know, pinpoint it. It's only when, you know, in my later years of primary school where I would be looking at boys uh, in the changing rooms when we were getting ready for PE and then when the other boys started talking about girls or looking at girls, I realised, oh no, I, I'm not like them because I'm actually looking at them. 
And at first, am I right in thinking you assumed, or as you grew older, that that meant you were gay? You thought about your sexuality before you did your gender identity. Yes, that's correct. So when I was having these realisations, I didn't actually have a word for it. I just knew that I was a boy that liked other boys. And with that, with that same realisation came the thought that this is wrong, I can't be like this because... I'm from a Muslim background, I'm from a South Asian background and also I don't know anyone else around me that has these feelings. Yeah, yeah. So when they talk about if you can't see it, you can't be it. I mean, we didn't have many positive or any representations of gay people, trans people in the media in those days anyway. And there were basically none of South Asian Yes, people. I mean, oh, uh, God, early 90s, the the only South Asian people on TV that I remember were Sanjay and Gita on EastEnders. And um, there used to be this programme called Network East on BBC Two on Sundays. Those are the only sort of Asian things on television that I really remember. The only other things that I remember that were Asian was we obviously had cable and satellite TVs that had Indian channels and Bollywood films, but nothing mainstream. So when you were working these ideas and these feelings out, am I right in thinking you wrote them in a diary? Wow, God, I think your researcher needs more than you know gold stars. <laughs> yes, I did write them in a diary. I kept a diary for many, many years uh, because I think my diary was the only place that I felt that I could write and express uh, those parts of myself. So I kept a diary and when I was 16 years old, my sister read my diary. <gasps> And my sister's like six years younger than me. She, at the time, obviously was like 10 years old. And she came to me and she said, look, I, I, I've read your diary. I know um, about you. Um, and she said, she said it very frankly. She was like, it's okay, but don't tell mum and dad because they're not going to get it. And, you know, this is a young girl of 10 years old telling me this. And in a way, she kind of, she kind of voiced those feelings that I already was feeling in my heart and in my mind. And it's great that she was so supportive, but actually telling you you have to keep it secret reinforces the idea that it is something dirty to be ashamed of that you can't share, doesn't it? Most definitely. And I mean, by this point, I was 16 and I was like, you know, go, going through my GCSE years and I was well aware of section 28 and you know I went to school during section 28 and I was getting very heavily bullied for being gay and that's when I first heard of the word gay and I went to the school library and I looked in the dictionary as to what it meant and what homosexuality meant and obviously I was like okay that's me but yeah, I was heavily bullied. And going to a school in Brixton in, in the 90s, a secondary school in Brixton in the 90s, I mean, I know London is a dangerous place right now for knife crime, but back then, oh God, like being like a, a young male teenager, I was held back by my teachers for, you know, right reasons. Everyone used to go home at 3.30. I used to go to the library to do my homework and then leave at five o'clock when no one was around because... You were in that much danger. Yes, because, you know, the gangs of Brixton knew that there was a batty boy that went to that school and there were all these threats going round. And, yeah, it was a really hard time because it's not like I could go home and say, 
mum and dad, I'm getting bullied because of this. So, so you were completely on your own. I was completely on my own. I did have, you know, a set of a, a couple of um, friends who were also either questioning at the time or were, you know, gay. Um, and we all sort of huddled together during lunch times in in games clubs in in the library. My music teacher and my drama teacher really helped me out in the sense that they would give me extra lessons during lunchtime and and break time so that you know I I could dodge punches and and threats and whatnot. So um, it was a difficult time. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna have to take a quick break. When we come back, it's going to be hopefully a better time. We're going to move on to more positive territory. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I am thrilled to be meeting Asifa Lahore. Asifa, we've just been talking about your difficult childhood and the fear, the terror that you had to live with as a norm. Am I right in thinking that you went to the Brits School of the Performing Arts and you encountered a whole different world from talk about one extreme to the other? Yes, that is correct. I literally went from secondary school to studying musical theatre at the Brit School, which was an amazing experience because it was the first time where um, I went from like quite a traumatic sort of homophobic environment where I couldn't be myself to really exploring my my queerness and my gayness. And, you know, um, God, like, you know... Um, the film fame and and that scene in the canteen and I literally did that on, I think <laughs> literally within the first few weeks of my class literally like I was one of few people that went into the canteen and did that scene reenacted it and it was amazing because the Brit School was the first place where you know I met sort of like openly proud and out sort of young LGBT people and it allowed me, those, you know, two, three years that I spent at the Brit School allowed me not only to express myself artistically, but also express uh, my sexuality, my identity, and just feel comfortable with my queerness more than anything. And how about meeting other gay as you thought you were then, gay Pakistanis? Am I, you know, because you did have a long-term relationship, didn't you, with um, a gay Pakistani you met around this time. That must have had a massive impact on you to meet somebody like you. Most definitely. I mean, I didn't meet my partner until uh, I went to university after the Brit School. But at the Brit School, like, it allowed me that space to, like, you know, come to terms with my queerness. But at the same time, I kind of, I was, like, one of few South Asian kids at the Brit School at the time. So, again, it was like, you know, I always felt that I was compartmentalising myself. It's only when I went to university and I went to university in Myland, Queen Mary, where I began sort of like, okay... I'm going to be queer, I'm going to be also South Asian, I'm going to let my Asianness hang out and not worry about it. There's so, so much going on there emotionally, oh, though, isn't God, there? Just in that sentence. It. Tell me about... I mean, when I was at the Brit School, it was between 2001 and 2004, and a lot happened politically in the world around yeah, that yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, So, you know, it wasn't cool to be South Asian during that time, but when I went to university, I was like, do you know what? I don't care. I'm going to express this part of me. But also, like, these different parts of you, the way that we were led to think they were in conflict, that being Muslim, being South Asian, being British, being queer, were all different things and you couldn't be all of them. 
You see, that's what I grew up with as well, that you couldn't be this, you couldn't be that. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I've had experiences throughout my life where when I'm with one community, I'm being, you know, I don't know, hated by the other community or when I'm in one community I'm being hated within the community for identifying with another community. So how do you love all of yourself and all the different elements which make up your gloriously unique whole Asif Aloha? How do you love all those different parts of you if you can't bring them together? Lots of English tea, lots of therapy and just lots of years of really understanding myself and being visible and breaking down those barriers of, you know, you can't do this, you can't be this. But yet at the same time, I'm living in a country where I, I'm being told that you can be anything you want to be. You can, you know, practice whatever you want to practice. You can do whatever job you want to do. And so it's taken a lot of self-love. I mean, I'm 39, you know, I, I'm, I'm not good a... Age, it's a good age, brilliant age. I love it. I love my 30s. I can't believe I'm, I'm saying goodbye to my 30s. Your 40s too. are even better, I promise you. Really? Yes. Oh, I can't wait. I can't wait. Um, but no, I, um, I basically, you know, I'm not a sexy little young twink anymore, but I, I'm happy with where I am in life because I've learned the skills to be happy being myself. Yeah. And I've got to a point where I don't care. I don't care what people think because I'm happy. That's why it gets better when you get older. Oh, I can say so far at 47. Okay, right, so Marion got these different strands. Let's go for the big one. Telling your parents, coming out to your parents, telling them, first of all, that you were gay. How did that go? Oh, God, I was 23. I was in my second year of university. You know, I just met this uh, gorgeous gay Pakistani guy that, you know, I fell head over heels in love with. And then um, coming out just sort of open like this big can of worms. It was literally like so many questions were thrown at me. You know, some I had the answers for, some I didn't, some... I did, but I didn't want to discuss such personal things with my mum and dad, especially around, you know, my sex life and things like that. Um, so, yeah, God, I was taken to the doctor, to my mom. We went around the fields, really, with that. And, yeah. So just when you're starting to celebrate and try and accept who you are, they try to push it back in again or tell you it's wrong. Yeah, I mean, uh, God, I remember those conversations with my mom. It was very much like, oh, why don't you marry? Like, why don't you marry? Because if you marry a woman, you will forget this side of you kind of thing. Like, it will, you'll totally forget that side of you. You'll be happy with wife and kids. And, you know, at the time when you've got so many people from your community sort of like on you, I kind of fell into this depression and agreed to an arranged marriage with my first cousin in Pakistan. So how did you get out of that situation then? Oh, God. Um, not just the arranged marriage, but the the mental, the slump in your mental health. Oh, I mean, that took a while. I, I fell into, like, a, a deep depression for, like, I think a good six months at the time. And it's only the intervention of my university tutor who, like, pulled me into his office one day and just said, look, you know, you're you're a bright kid, you're handing in work that is below your standards, your usual standard, what's going on? And that in that moment, that catalyst, I, all the tears just started flowing and I just told him exactly what was going on because during those six months, I kind of 
shut myself away from the gay community, from the gay scene. It was, I was trying to handle it on my own and wasn't doing a good job. And did you go to Pakistan to meet your cousin? No, no, not at all. I mean, at that point, I hadn't, everything had been arranged, but I hadn't seen my cousin maybe for a good three, four years. So I basically ended up just blurting everything out, like to my university tutor. And he actually put me in touch with LGBT charities in in central London. And that's where I began, you know, getting counselling, getting therapy, and also attended support groups specifically for gay South Asians, gay Muslims, you name it, like really intersectional sort of um, support groups. And I know it's going to sound really ridiculous, Matt, but up until that point, I thought I was the only one. Um, That's how little representation there had been. You literally felt on your own. So you went from being the little child feeling completely on your own at school to being a young adult. Yes, and a young adult that had just been introduced to this massive community that had always been there, but I had never had access to. Right, Asifa, we're going to take a break in a minute and we're going to come to the blossoming of Asifa Lahore. But I want to ask you a quick question before we do. When you were having all this counselling, all this exploring your identity, your sexuality, and you felt like you were the only one as a gay South Asian, did anybody ever suggest you might be trans? No, not at any point. I mean, up until that point, I mean, trans, we're talking, what, mid-noughties. Trans visibility was like super super low I mean all I remember was like at that point like tattoo having a number one and what about that woman on what was that woman on who won big brother um oh Nadia Nadia Nadia, Nadia. yes I do remember that the other thing I remember was Dana International winning Eurovision in 1998 and that had a massive profound effect on me but I think because I was being bullied so hard for like being gay 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 and not really having the words for transness I just assumed that I was gay and I was happy living a gay male lifestyle well and if you're just trying to survive as well which it sounds like you were for a lot of your life you're just trying to get through being gay which is hard enough you know um, you're not gonna jump into a whole new journey of exploring your gender identity are you oh no no definitely I agree with you on that one I mean I was just getting used to actually just being myself at that point and, um, you know, getting through university. <laughs> OK, right, Asifa, we're coming back to the blossoming of Asifa Lahore right after this. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I am Matt Kane, and today I'm meeting Asifa Lahore. Asifa, we were just talking before the break about the counselling you had from an LGBT charity, and then you started to accept yourself, to explore who you were as, as you thought at the time, a gay man. Can we talk about discovering drag and the birth of your drag persona and where all this inspiration came from? So I went to university to get away from performing because I kind of exited performing because I was so scared that my parents would find out about who I really was. Because, you know, when you're performing, you kind of have to be honest and open. So 
I had obviously during university come out and I was working for the NHS and the charity sector as a support worker um, within sexual health for South Asian LGBT communities. And I was really inspired. I was giving back. And then I was out one night with friends and I saw a poster for Drag Idol. And my friends were like, go on, enter. Like, it's been ages since you've sung. It's been ages since you've performed. We think you'd look good in a dress. And so I entered drag idol wearing a and I say this very innocently wearing a rainbow burqa which I ripped off to reveal a sari which I ripped off to reveal a sequined Union Jack dress and oh it's all there isn't it in that warm sequence of costumes it's all there every level and layer and I went on sort of in that singing a parody of Aqua's Barbie Girl, but changing it to I'm a Punjabi girl in a Punjabi world. And yeah, the rest sort of is history that I basically came third overall in the national finals in Drag Idol 10 years ago now. God, it feels like ages. But um, interesting that your heritage, your religion, your cultural identity, it was always part of your drag persona. And it sounds like you were also exploring the conflict between Islamic tradition and sexual expression. It's all going on, isn't it? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, uh, you know, Matt, I mean, if you want to enter a competition, right, you're not going to enter to come ninth or tenth. You Sounds enter like you meant business, Asifa. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I, I knew that I was, you know, my experiences of going out on the gay scene and everything, uh, you know, prior to university, uh, I would go into, like, majority white spaces. There were times when I would be dancing to You Spin Me Right Round Baby and talking about being Muslim or defending, you know, uh, my Muslim heritage. So I knew that if I was going to go into this competition being you know south asian being muslim isn't something that i wanted to hide so i really embraced it and i'm glad i did because my drag act started a lot of debate within you know the umbrella of the queer community right so speaking about debate in in 2014 there was a really crucial landmark moment in your life and career the bbc were going to film you in birmingham central mosque there was a debate around the topic when will homosexuality be accepted in islam and the committee of the mosque wanted to censor the debate and the hysteria this generated in the media effectively gave you this massive platform and your activism suddenly is not just drag, it's you as this spokesperson for your community. And you'd only just recently found out there was a community of Gaysians. <laughs> right. I mean, I never set out to be an activist. It just sort of, I call myself like an unwilling activist because I think my very existence is politicalized it still is even today and up until like 2014 i was always saying no to a lot of media opportunities because you know i'd got to a point where i was happy with myself did i then want to like go on the bbc or channel 4 and then talk about who i was what this community was about and open up this massive can of worms again and do it publicly well and also what about you i mean what about your mom and dad how did they react to this suddenly massive public profile my mum and dad didn't really know about me doing drag until maybe like a couple of years into my drag career where I gave a news interview to a Pakistani news channel, not thinking anything of it, but then obviously mum gives me a call saying, oh, you've become quite a celebrity, I see. How did she and your dad react? 
my dad sort of didn't speak about it for a number of years. He was he was very indifferent to it. It's not like he approved it and it's it's not like he disapproved it because I think my mum and dad were always aware of my performing, you know, desires. I mean, I had to really put my foot down to go to the Brit school, for example, and not do like science or law uh, at university, for example. Oh my God, your life has been such a struggle and a battle on every front, hasn't it? It has, but I, I think it's made me who I am. Like, I think those early experiences experiences of fighting has led me to where I am and I'm happy it's happened that way. And what about the hate mail and the death threats that you got <laughs> when you suddenly had this public profile? I mean, look, uh, yes, I get death threats. Yes, I get online hate and abuse and you name it. But I'm one of these people. I'm I'm one of life's go-getters. You either make it happen and, and live your life and, and do what you have to do or you stay quiet and live behind the veil. But even though you are a go-getter, that can still take its toll on you emotionally, can't it? Yes. Oh, God, yes, of course it can. Uh, it, it's, it can be a struggle. I mean, there are some days when my mental health, I just don't want to get out of bed. I just want a duvet day with lots of good food and lots of Netflix. But, you know, I, I think I've got to a point now where in my life, in my, you know, week, I have set days where... I have a sea for time where I have time just for me. I have fun time where I want to do things that I want to do. And I, darling, I've got to a point where I don't take life too seriously. I love it. Yeah. I love that. We've That's just great. We've just gone through a two-year pandemic. Like, really, I think people are taking life so seriously and I don't anymore. I, I, I just live. Well, I think that's great. But before you got to that point, you had this explosion of your profile and, you know, it was you were getting these serious death threats. And then you did the amazing documentary Muslim Drag Queens for Channel 4, which was a sensation. And your profile must have just gone to another level. And you were making... I mean, one of the things that really struck me about that documentary, and I watched it again before doing this interview, was the fact that this Gaijin community was very much before then a hidden community. And you explore the subject of shame in the doc, but you also explore the subject of making the community visible and a lot of members of it did not want that visibility. So you've got one really memorable sequence is the protest march mm. and no Gaijans turn up. Mm. And did, so did you get pushback from gay Asians after the doc and around the time you know, because you were, whether you liked it or not, becoming this spokesperson, this representative, mm. and some of them didn't want representing. Mm. It's it's very interesting because Muslim drag queens were shot and broadcast in 2015. And I firmly believe, like, the world has changed a lot in the last seven years. Partly because of that, Doc Asifa. We've got to say it. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I I think when, when you're shooting something and it's being broadcast and you're in the centre of it, you don't really see the impact it's having until afterwards. And, you know, yes, that documentary, it's very much groundbreaking. It's very much first of its kind. And, and yes, prior to that, and I'd say even still now, there are certain sections of the gay Gaijin community that don't want to be seen, that don't want to be out. And listen, that's fine. That's cool. People can, you know, people have a choice to live whatever life they want but 
I do firmly believe that now seven years later, there's so many more South Asian people out and about in the gay scene. There's so many more people wanting to be visible on social media. I mean, God, I, back then we found it difficult to like recruit people that wanted to be part of that documentary. Now, uh, you know, if you put something out for South Asian queer people, you'll get massive, massive amount of like drag artists. You'll get people wanting to speak out, people wanting to tell their stories. And you know since then since 2015 we've had the rise of black lives matter we've had a pandemic we've had you know austerity i think people just are fed up they just want to be seen and heard oh i love it that's a really good point to pause for our last break we'll be back in just a few minutes matt kane meets virgin radio pride you're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane Meets with me, Matt Kane. Today, I am chatting to the amazing Asifa Lahore. Asifa, we were talking before the break about the impact and the influence of your documentary for Channel 4 Muslim Drag Queens. Um, shortly after making that documentary, or a few years after making it, you realised you weren't a gay man at all, but actually a trans woman, and started your transition. You know, we've talked so much in this interview about you not seeing any possibilities for you to explore who you really were, um, no representation, just thinking you were the only one. Where did this realisation that actually you were a trans woman finally come from? If I'm honest with myself, drag for me, as well as being like a full-blown self-expression to like really express my art and who I am, it also was a vehicle for me questioning my gender identity. Trying those hairs and makeups and those dresses in the first few days and, you know, the more and more my um, career became successful, at the end of every night, like, a huge part of me would die every time I would like take things off. And I knew for me it was much more than a performance. And I think by this time, you know, I think trans people, it's not something that even though you know you're trans, I think medically transitioning or coming out as trans is still so hard because you've got to like, in many ways, and I hate to say it, you kind of have to weigh the pros and cons. Here I was, a successful drag artist, uh, a gay man out in the public spotlight. I, at the time, had married my gorgeous gay husband. I was living the life. I was out to my parents, everything. And then do I now want to throw a massive spanner in the works? come out as transgender, come out publicly as transgender because I'm preaching about authenticity and being yourself. And then also coming out as a transgender Muslim female. That's it so was a lot. Yeah, it? yeah, it's a lot to sort of weigh up. And it took me a, a quite a number of years to go, do you know what? And I think the, the bottom line was it's only in 2016, a year after Muslim Drag Queens, I was at a conference in South Africa, in Cape Town, and it was a conference for LGBT activists. And I met um, some activists from India and Pakistan, queer trans activists that were out there living their lives and you know really doing some amazing work with trans visibility in Pakistan and India and I was like god here I am with access to like a great sort of health service access to you know if I wanted to transition I'd have a much easier ride than these lovely women who were finding it really difficult so yeah I I 
got off that flight from Cape Town. It was November 2016. And I called my sister and told her I was transgender. At a go. And what was her reaction? See, I'd love to know, actually, talking about trans visibility, we have, in some ways, in Pakistan, there is a long tradition of visible... They're called hijras. Yes. You know, so for your family, your sister, your mum and dad, was it, and I apologise if this is an overly simplistic question, was it easier for them to accept you as a trans woman than it was a gay man? The short answer is yes. I mean, when I told my sister, my sister said to me, you've always been a she. So welcome, she said. But in terms of my mum and dad, they took the news that I was transgender so much better than me identifying as a gay man. And I still have my isms about that, by the way. I still don't think that's right. But I think the reason why my mum and dad accepted me more as a transgender female is because they had reference points. You know, as you say, in Pakistan, India, in much of South Asia, we have the Hydra community, the unit community, the third gender community. And these were words that we have in our languages. And it's interesting because in the East, we've had, you know, non-binary identities. We've had transgender identities in, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia, in South Asia, whereas you know, in the West, we've kind of dealt with the LGB thing and now we're dealing with the T thing. In the East, being gay and lesbian, bisexual is still a big taboo. So, yeah. and I think, you know, going back to my childhood experiences, because on the constant trips to Pakistan and India, I would see visible trans people and identify with them. Coming back to the UK and being bullied for being gay, I thought the words or the being was being gay for transgender in this country. Uh, so I think the cultural oh, how divide... interesting. Yes. How interesting. Um, you had so much to work out for yourself, didn't you? It's staggering. Yeah. So you've said in some ways it was easier in terms of your cultural heritage. What about your religious heritage? How did that fit into coming out as a trans woman and being... Would you still describe yourself as a Muslim? Yes, I mean, many Muslims probably won't describe me as a Muslim, but I do. I mean, you know, for me, uh, religion is about love. It's about community. You know, I, I pray whenever I can find the time. I give to charity. I support a lot of family members in, in India and Pakistan. And that's all down to Islam. You know, in Islam, we believe in charity, which begins at home. We believe in God. We believe in prayer. We believe in community. There's a sort of like five pillars of Islam that I I'm quite strong about but at the same time you know I've got to a point where sometimes I might have a, a naughty red wine and that's cool for me but it might not be cool for other people but yeah now my link with Islam is very cultural it's very linked to my family to to my South Asian-ness. And we've talked about um, the gay Asian community obviously you're a very prominent figure the club scene. In terms of queer Muslims in general in the UK, whether gay, trans, do you think it's getting easier for them to understand themselves, accept themselves and be happy? Most definitely. I oh, mean, great. most definitely. I mean, I think the, the power of the internet, the power of social media, the power of visibility has really allowed in the UK and worldwide, I mean, the, the gay Asian community is becoming so much more visible. And I think people now know that, you know, 
uh, gay Asians exist and they are happy, they can be happy, they can live their lives and it's not all doom and gloom. I think I think finally we're entering a period in the queer community on the whole where there's joy out there rather than trauma and everything. Yes, that comes hand in hand with our existence, but we do live happy, joyous lives as well. And I'm glad that we're living through an era of, say, having something like Heartstopper on Netflix, where we can be proud and joyous and in love with ourselves. And when you look back over your part in this and everything you've achieved, how does that make you feel? Do you know what? I, I'm proud, yes. I'm very proud of myself, of my achievements. And in a selfish way, I've done them for myself in order to be happy to live a life. And listen, if anyone out there has been impacted by what I've achieved or what I've done, I'm just glad that, you know, if just one person can stand up and live their life authentically then I'm happy that I've I've done what I've done. And now, I mean, you've had a long journey to living, well, to working out what it means to live authentically for you and then to do it. How about your happiness levels? Is this the happiest you've been now you're living authentically? Oh, God, yeah. I've, um, you know, at 39, uh, I feel like I life for me is beginning it's really weird like i feel so happy i don't feel i'm living life in fear i don't think i'm hiding i'm really happy i mean <laughs> you know here i am talking to you i don't think i would have ever thought something like that would happen looking back and going you know being that scared sort of teenager keeping himself to himself so i'm happy Oh, fantastic. And what about you say this is just the beginning? What's next? Oh, God, what's next? So I'm performing up and down the country. I want to do Drag Race UK. Woo! Um, I'd love to see you on Drag Race UK. I think it's about time we see, you know, a South Asian drag artist on the UK version. And, yeah, I just, I just want to do big and better things. Brilliant. I will be there to watch it all and I can't wait. Asifa Lahore, thank you very much. Thank you, my darling. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. Right, that's about it for this week. Thank you very much to my amazing guest, Asifa Lahore. Drop me a line on social media if you've enjoyed the show or you have something you want to say. We're on at Virgin Radio UK and I am on at Matt Kane Writer. And please use the hashtag Virgin Radio Pride. Matt Kane Meets will be back next week. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, celebrating every colour of the rainbow.